and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Good morning. I am uh, reading our scripture. It comes from Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning. His clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. The angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where the body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. As they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Um, I meant to make this joke at the announcements, but it's very funny to me that y'all are here today because, you know, normally we start at 10 a.m. and you struggle to get here, but 9 it seems like the right time, huh? I like that. Uh, uh, this week I was furiously uh, helping my youngest son, Huck, clean his room. And by furiously, I mean we were trying to do it really quickly and also I was mad. Uh, and so I don't know if you've ever helped a child clean their room um, who has ADD, but it is something special. Um, and so uh, uh, here's why I'm mad. Um, because these are the kinds of things, I find. like I'm cleaning out this uh, shelf while he's supposed to be cleaning behind me, but every time I turn around, he's like, oh, good, you've built a Jeep out of your Legos or, you know, whatever. And, and I'm doing the shelf and I'm just like, oh, like, clean, clean, I'm so mad. And then I find uh, this little uh, frame, which ironically says, love you to the moon and back. Um, but when I find it to move it and like dust it off, uh, inside, I don't have any more, but inside he had stuff like 40 dum-dum wrappers. Like the suckers, do you know what I'm talking about? And I was just like, what is happening? And how are you eating so many suckers? Like this explains a lot. But they were just shoved in there. And, and I don't know if you have those moments where it's like, that's not that big of a deal. It's a very tiny frame. But it was just my like, ugh. And so I was peeling them out one by one and throwing them. I was like, one, two, three. You know, I was like peeling them out. And he's like, no, no, no. Like, and I said, why do you have these? He said, it's my collection. And I was like, of trash? 
And I'm so mad. And what my mom is saying to my dad right now is that I was the same way. And I, I had this flash, right? I had this flashback to me as a child. I too, like Huck, was something of a collector. Um, none of cool things like stamps or money or antiques or uh, beanie babies with tags still on them. I wish I would collected those. We would have a paid-for church building. But um, if you're under 30, Google beanie babies. It'll make sense. Um, I didn't collect those things. I was a more, uh, more of like a niche collector. Um, so like, for example, when my parents moved out of my childhood home, they made me come clean my stuff out. And I found a few of the collections. Uh, one of them was a, ten, a box that was at least 10 years old filled with jawbreakers that had been partially eaten. And I was just saving them because I really wanted to know what the center was like. And I just thought I might, you know, come back year after year to these old licked jawbreakers that I collected. Another uh, thing that I found was teeth. That's like teeth. Um, I don't know. Nothing quite prepares you to open up a box and be like, oh, what's this? And then open it and it is teeth, human teeth in the box. Those were the kinds of things um, that I collected. But the, the worst one that I can remember was uh, when I was young, probably Huck's age or maybe even a little bit younger. And um, my room had started to smell. And I think the smell had gone beyond my room and out into the rest of the house. And it's like, you know, every day my mom was like, what is the smell coming from your room? And it's like, not my room. I don't know, you know. And it's like, yes, it is. And so we finally zero in, and my mom zeroes in, and she finds I had two beds in my room, one I slept in, one I didn't. And in the back furthest corner of the bed that I didn't sleep in, my mom uncovers um, this container, and it was filled with caterpillars, like dozens of caterpillars, like in my mind, an exodus amount of caterpillars, that a summer's worth of caterpillars that I had collected day after day after day. And, and, and they're there just sitting in this box, dying and dried and almost petrified, some of them. But to me, they weren't just petrified bugs. Uh, caterpillars, they were evidence of, of something miraculous that was about to happen. And no smell is too bad for an imminent miracle, right? I mean, we're talking these things become butterflies. I had big plans that I would collect all of these caterpillars all summer, and then hundreds of butterflies would fill my room. No plans after that, but hundreds of butterflies would fill my room. And my mom is so mad at me about it, and I am so mad at my mom because all I could see her doing was asking me to throw away these little miracles smelling up our entire house. One could argue that I was actually already witness to a miracle as they were becoming wooden and fossilizing, <laughs> but <laughs> that wasn't the one I was looking for. Um, uh, there's a preacher I love named Barbara Brown Taylor, and, and she talks about how she loved, uh, had a very similar uh, love that she loves cicada shells. Do you know what I'm talking about? And, and she would collect cicada shells, and she said she would proudly wear them on her clothes to school. <laughs> and, and, and what she said was she was like, um, these cicadas, they are old clothes of a new thing. Uh, they were evidence of the miraculous. That's how I felt about caterpillars. I didn't see dead bugs. Instead, I saw the old clothes that butterflies used to wear. 
And as I was imagining the story uh, for this week, I remembered that old caterpillar story as my way of imagining the resurrection of Jesus. But um, I was kind of putting myself in the, in the, uh, as the women, and they appear at this tomb, and I was just trying to imagine how they felt in the moment. And I wondered if they felt like my mom, like they discovered a surprise, but it was more of like a shock and awe, oh no kind of thing. But then I think the reason the caterpillars came to mind is because I wondered if maybe uh, they felt a little bit more like me, uh, uh, that they, they uncovered this, this thing. I wonder if the linens folded up that were waiting in the tomb uh, felt like the evidence of a miraculous thing that had occurred, that they felt like the old clothes that Jesus used to wear back when he was dead. Uh, Matthew tells us early in the morning that two Marys, they walked to the tomb. And on their walk, there's the evidence of death everywhere. It's the morning. It's dark. It's somber. Uh, Other uh, tellings of the story tell us that they have spices in their hand. They're getting ready to prepare Jesus um, for his real burial, prepare his body. There's the evidence of death when you come across a tomb. Evidence of death uh, was everywhere. But the scene, uh, maybe it wasn't what they wanted, but my hunch is that it was what they expected it to be. They knew what they were doing this morning. Uh, And then an earthquake comes. And on the heels of an earthquake comes an angel. And they find when they see into the tomb that all that was left of the body of their friend were the clothes uh, that he wore after he died. Evidence of a miracle right in front of him or a robbery. I wonder uh, for them at what point the evidence of the miraculous overtook the evidence of death in their lives. Like, was it the earthquake or the angel sending them back to the disciples? Was that enough to be like, holy smoke, something's happening here? Like, I wonder when they started to realize uh, what, was, what had happened if they had this mix of shock and awe, wanting so badly to believe that what Jesus has said had actually become true, but also a little bit terrified that it had it. Some of you relate to that this morning. Or maybe the miraculous uh, overtook them when they bumped into Jesus on the road. He was the one that they'd been looking for. The angel said that they would find him, and then they collide with him. Like they're walking and they bump in to the one they thought they were going to prepare for his, his burial. And he greets them. Um, the NIV translation of this passage says that when they bump into him and he greets him, he just says, greetings. Which I think is hilarious. Actually, I think he missed a great opportunity. I would have said, boo. <laughs> Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And he says, greetings. It doesn't seem like the women thought it was very funny because the next thing he has to say is do not fear because they fall at his feet to worship him. They're delighted, I'm sure, but also terrified. And so Jesus says something he's always saying, don't be afraid and go tell my friends. And they do. And from that moment on, the world has never been the same. N.T. Wright, who I'll be quoting from all morning, um, he says that the resurrection of Jesus, it's beyond the categories of any other miracles. At the resurrection, it's not like this uh, supernatural flex from God because he needed like a super miracle. And it's, it's, not, it's also not a favor to Jesus bringing him back from being mostly dead to alive, Princess Bride fans. There's a big difference between being mostly dead and all the way dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. That isn't it. No, the resurrection is far more than that. In this moment, God, uh, not, he doesn't just raise Jesus. He raises Jesus from the dead. And at this moment, he brings about something entirely new. 
Because of this moment, a whole new world is unfolding with every single step that these women take. We see it in the earthquake. The earth is literally quaking, opening up to a world that had been promised long ago that is starting to unfold underneath their feet. A world uh, Jesus started where the things of heaven start to take over the things of earth. And things like sadness and death and fear become untrue and they lose their power. What they were witnesses to that early morning uh, continues to unfold uh, today, 2,000 years later, in a way that we get to be witnesses to this morning. Today, alongside Jesus' followers all over the world, we celebrate the evidence of the miraculous. The risen Jesus um, is proof of God's acceptance that Jesus' life and death were enough, enough for us. That his judgment against the world is settled. That uh, Jesus' resurrection is the proof that God's judgment is no longer against the world, but with the aim of saving the world. The resurrection of Jesus settles God's judgment. It solidifies God's verdict of a new life and a fresh hope and renewal for the whole earth. It was God's proclamation that what Jesus did in his life and what he did on the cross made the whole story work, as Frederick Buechner says, entirely in our favor. And so for our next few minutes, I just want to talk about that. How uh, 2,000 years later, this story matters in our everyday lives. Um, I have a couple of favorite Easter quotes. If you've been here uh, for a while, you know that I tend to put them on napkins and make you take them home uh, with you after service. Um, this one is coming to a napkin near you at some point in time, but it's a quote by Frederick Buechner who I just quoted, and he says this. He says, the resurrection is God's proof in our world that the worst thing is not the final thing. I love that. Resurrection means that the worst thing is not the final thing. We see this in Jesus. The resurrection of Christ means that brutality and abuse and betrayal, they do not get the final word on his life, and neither does death. The story of Jesus, it doesn't end with him hanging on a tree, but instead uh, greeting his friends on the road. Greetings. And later in a room and 40 days of teaching and walking and living and breathing. In the resurrection, the worst things of Jesus' life and his experience are not final things. And I think if this is true about Jesus, then I th and I think it is, then I think it's also true for us as well. That the resurrection means that in our lives also, the worst things are not the final things. Which means that the resurrection offers us maybe like a new set of, a new lens, like a new way of, of seeing old thoughts. Uh, I think many of us in this room are haunted by the worst things of the world or the worst things of our world. Uh, inside many of us is a struggle against the worst things we've ever done or the worst things that were done to us. Inside many of us is a grief so fresh or so deep that it speaks loudly over our lives and our sleeps and our, our decision-making, our minds, our hearts. Inside a whole lot of us in this room is a panic that tells us that things are mostly terrible in the world and it's headed to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing we can do about it. But the resurrection tells us that these things, the worst things in our lives or our families or the world or on the news or whatever, the worst things are not the entire story for us and they are not the entire story for the world. Resurrection helps us learn to see beyond uh, whatever is worse to see a bigger story 
It offers us a new lens, a, a wider lens, a wider perspective where we can see uh, that the last word on this world isn't what hurts us or scares us or paralyzes us or haunts us, but instead, uh, to quote the Avett brothers, the last word on this world is love. Resurrection dares this claim that God's last word on this world and on his people is love. Here's, here's another way to say it. Uh, I've used this example before, uh, and I love it, but I read a writer one time, and she was talking about fear and the creative process, and she was talking about how fear can kind of overtake something creative, whereas you're making something, you're like, oh, no, what will people think, or will this be as good as my last one, or uh, will I make any money on it, or whatever, and, and fear will kind of overtake it, and, and that fear can sort of work its powers of destruction in a way that threatens whatever it is you're working on, the, the painting, or the book, or the work project, or whatever. And she said something profound, and I would argue very uh, resurrection-esque. She said part, that fear is part of the creative process. It just is. When you create something, fear is in your car. It's along for the ride. But she said that somewhere along the way, as she wrote, she learned something. She said, I stopped letting fear drive my car. It can ride in the back seat, but it doesn't get to drive. It doesn't get to control the map, and it definitely does not get to pick the music. And I think that's what I mean when I say that the worst thing is not the final thing. The worst stuff of this world and the worst stuff of our lives, it's in our car, right? Resurrection is not permission for denial. The good news of the resurrection isn't that Jesus wasn't dead. The good news of the resurrection is that Jesus was dead and then he wasn't. We don't deny the worst stuff. We just stop letting it drive the car, we just start hoping for something uh, beyond it. Horrible things, they exist and they wreak havoc in our lives and all over the world. And we do not deny those things. But resurrection hope declares something beyond them. Dares to believe that the final word on this world is not abuse or betrayal or brutality. It isn't classism or racism or sexism or religious injustice or violence or suffering or Human trafficking, it's not hunger, it's not depression, it's not anxiety, it's not darkness, or even death. These things, they are real, and their effects are real, and the pain around them is real. They are the worst things, but they are not the final ones. They don't drive our cars. And at the risk of taking this analogy to a very cheesy level, through the empty tomb, God has actually put Jesus, the great hope of the world, in the driver's seat. He gets to drive, and he gets to control the map, and he gets to pick the playlist. And I got to warn you, there's probably a lot of Dolly Parton on. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, no, that's the worst thing, and you're wrong. <laughs> the Marys, they showed up at the tomb on Easter morning after a long Saturday where God was silent or seemed to be, where God's final words seemed to be silence. And in their hands were burial spices, evidence that the worst thing had actually happened. But when they arrive at the tomb, they found a whole different story. I was talking, um, I, I have a book club this week. I think I've told you about it. It's Four Baptists, a Lutheran, and me. Um, it's one of my, the highlights of my week every week. And we were talking about this this week, how this plays out uh, in our lives. And I was talking about this, that... Um, this idea of how this, the, the worst thing not being the final thing plays out in my life. And I was telling them uh, about this season. You know, sometimes there are just seasons of life where the worst things kind of own you. Do you know, 
talking about? Some of you may be there uh, right now. Uh, where the worst things kind of own you, and not only do they drive your car, but they, like, lock you up in the trunk in the back while they go, right? And for me, those seasons are usually filled with, like, a lot of grief or doubt or things like that. And, and, and one of them that I was telling uh, my friends about was, was not that long ago. It was actually uh, last winter. Um, uh, right after Christmas, my, my friend Glenn died of COVID, and, and I got to be with him a, as he died, and it was this honor, it was like this, I don't know, beautiful, brutal honor. I don't know if you've been in the room when someone uh, closer to your age than you like is dying, and I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand his death for so many reasons. Honestly, I, I still don't, um, and it got really hard for me to see beyond it. And I felt like in every room I went to, I saw that hospital room, just everywhere that I went, especially this room. Because I would look back in the corner where he sat, and he wasn't there anymore. And I saw it every single Sunday. And at some point I realized that, that I, I just, I, like I wasn't singing anymore. Like things in this room were hard. It was hard to, those were the two, the two hardest things were singing and praying. Those were just really hard in that season of life. I just felt like I couldn't do it. But then at some point, uh, I looked around, and I realized that even though the, the songs were really hard for me to sing, uh, you guys kept singing them. And even though the prayers were really hard for me to pray, you guys kept praying them. And I just felt like I was, I was living out the truth of this mystery, that the worst thing in my, things in my life, they are very real things, but they don't have the final word. This room offered me a different story where in the name of resurrection, the worst things are not the final things. The things that are so hard for me to believe in seasons, you believe for me. And together, uh, we let Jesus drive the car. Uh, I want to read one last quote uh, before we close up our time. This one comes... Um, from an East Indian Jesuit priest. His name is Pratap Naik. And he says this. Dave, I think I have a slide for this, but I've like gone all over the place. So uh, here's what he says. I love it. Each time we love again after having our love rejected, we share in the power of the resurrection. Each time we hope again after having our hope smashed to pieces, we share in the power of the resurrection. And each time we pick up the pieces, wipe our tears, face the sun, and start again, we share in the power of the resurrection. And so I figured to end our time today, maybe we could just do that. We could together share in the power of the resurrection. Uh, we do something here every week. We call it Selah. It's just like a quiet pause or a breath. Uh, after the women left the tomb and they're walking on the road, uh, they had that moment where they collide with Jesus. They collide with the one uh, that they were looking for. Greetings. And so I wonder um, if, if that's, that's kind of how I see Selah uh, for us. Uh, Selah is the place where we collide with the one we showed up to find. And so I just wonder if there might be some places in your life where you are believing the worst parts of you or the worst parts of the world as the final word. I wonder if maybe the worst things in some places in your life might be driving your car. And so what I want to do is I just want to take a minute and try and discover what those things are. 
um, not to shame them or deny them, but to try to figure out what they are to see them and then to hold them up to Jesus and to ask him at the risk of wearing this analogy out to put them in the back seat for us. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to say a couple of statements, and if it helps, you can feel free to close your eyes. This is not like a every head bowed, every eyes closed situation. I'm not going to ask you to like do anything else. Just closing my eyes makes me uh, pay attention. So if you want to close your eyes, you can, but, um, but I just want whatever posture you need to take um, that would allow you to listen to your own life. Um, then that's what I want to do. And I'm going to just say a couple of statements. Um, and I want you to listen to whatever it is in you when I say the statement, whatever it is in you that says, or like, yeah, but, or uh, makes that. You with me? Listen for that. I have two statements, and I'll say them, and we'll listen. And then I'm going to bless it, and then we're just going to hold those to Jesus. We're going to share in the resurrection power. So here's the first statement. This comes from John 16, 33. Through Jesus Christ, you live at peace with the world. Through Jesus Christ, you live at peace with the world. Here's a second statement from Colossians 1. Through Jesus Christ, you are at peace with God, and God is at peace with you. Through Jesus Christ, you are at peace with God, and God is at peace with you. What feels like sandpaper in that? Let's pray. God, uh, we invite your spirit. We believe you're here. Ask that we would experience you as here. And I pray that we would be attentive enough to feel the sandpaper, to feel what it is that makes us disagree, whatever it is that says, we're not at peace at the, with the world because, or I can't be at peace with God if you only knew. And so God, we expose it. We give us the courage to see it. And then we put it in the back seat. And we acknowledge that the worst things are real, but we remind us that your final word over us is not that.